Last week we looked at Paul's general reason for writing the epistle to Titus, which was the same reason he wrote all his letters as an apostle. He wrote to strengthen the faith of those chosen of God, to increase godliness in the lives of believers, and to reaffirm the hope that makes sense of life, the promise of life eternal. Those are the fundamental reasons Paul wrote his letters and the reason we study them. In fact, we study all of God's Word to have our faith strengthened, to increase in godliness, and to maintain hope. That covers the general reason for the letter. But what was the immediate occasion for writing? What prompted Paul to write this particular letter to Titus? As we read on, we discover the reason was tied to Paul's leaving Titus in Crete. We learn of this in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, as we noted last week, there's no record of Paul leaving Titus in Crete in the book of Acts. We therefore conclude this must have happened after the events recorded in Acts. Apparently, Paul and Titus made a trip to Crete sometime after Paul's release from his first Roman imprisonment. And while on the island, they either established a number of churches or found churches already established there. Now, we do know that there were some Cretans in the crowd in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost who, who heard the mighty deeds of God miraculously proclaimed. So it's not at all unlikely that, that they had established the churches after returning home. But whether Paul had established them or the Cretans had done so, there was apparently some additional work that needed to be done before they could function effectively as bodies of Christ. And the most pressing need was for qualified local leadership. Thus Titus stayed behind after Paul's departure to appoint elders in each of the churches. Now, why Paul didn't do so himself, we can only speculate. We know from Acts that it was customary for elders to be appointed in churches that Paul established before leaving town. Perhaps his trip to Crete was cut short, and that's why he left Titus behind to finish setting things in order. Or he may have simply noticed that the churches of Crete were in desperate need of well-taught leadership and knew it would take time to get the job done. Whatever the case, Titus was left there to appoint elders in every city. Now, it may surprise you to discover Titus was instructed to appoint elders, not to hold elections. 
Now, if you've been a part of Chatham Christian Church for a long time, it might not surprise you as much as it would if you were a member of a more traditional Christian church. We did away with official memberships and elections back in the early 80s. But traditionally, Christian churches that identify themselves with the restoration movement that took place in the early 1800s in America came to be structured a bit like the American government. Local congregations were governed by a board made up of duly elected elders and deacons, similar to a legislature consisting of senators and congressmen. The preacher filled the role of president, a spokesman, and administrator who carried out the decisions of the board. And the women's group functioned as the Supreme Court. (laughs) Well, we recognized the unbiblical nature of such a structure for a church, and we did away with elections and majority rules mentality over 30 years ago. We did, however, realize the importance of congregational approval of those entrusted with the leadership of a church. And we therefore decided to invite the congregation to annually affirm that those who have a desire to serve as elders are biblically qualified to do so. Likewise, even though Titus was told to appoint elders in every city, the appointment of such did not exclude congregational involvement. When the need arose in the early church for some men to oversee the care of widows, the apostles told the church to select seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that they could put in charge of the task. The word translated put in charge is the same word translated in our text as appoint. Obviously, then, Titus did not arbitrarily appoint men to serve as elders in the churches of Crete. He no doubt sought congregational help in identifying men of good reputation and wisdom, men who gave evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. In fact, if we dig a little deeper, we discover it really was not Titus or even the congregation who appointed the elders. It was the Holy Spirit. In Acts 20, 28, Paul told the Ephesian elders to be on guard for themselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit had made them overseers. The appointment, the affirmation, the setting apart of a man as an elder is therefore merely the formal recognition of what the Holy Spirit has already done. Our job is to simply discern who the Holy Spirit has equipped and chosen as an elder. And we do that by noting who is already functioning as a shepherd of the flock and who is biblically qualified to represent Christ as an elder of his church. We then publicly recognize them as such. 
And as we'll soon see, the basic qualification for an elder is that he be blameless, that he be above reproach. Now, to be blameless is not to be perfect. If that were the case, there would be no elders. One of the words translated blameless literally means without handles. A blameless man is therefore one who has nothing in his life that an adversary can take a hold of and use to bring reproach to him or to the church he serves. That doesn't mean an elder will be above criticism. Everyone has critics. Even our Lord had his critics. But it does mean that an elder must have nothing in his life that people can legitimately point to, grab hold of, and say, I can't believe he's an elder because kinds of things that might be legitimately pointed to are spelled out in Paul's letters to Titus and Timothy. And this morning we're going to briefly look at the things Paul mentioned to Titus. We're going to see what it means to be blameless in several areas that must be examined before a man can be judged as qualified to serve as an elder of the Lord's church. And the first thing we note is that an elder must be a man because he is to be blameless as a husband and father. Verse 6, Namely, if a man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, once we acknowledge the apparent limitation of men only serving as elders, the debate opens on what is meant by the husband of one wife. Historically, it's been viewed a number of ways, including, believe it or not, a call for celibacy, insisting that an elder can only be married to the church. Others have taken it to mean just the opposite, that an elder must be a married man. In a day of polygamy, it was seen as a prohibition against having more than one wife. Some insist it means an elder cannot marry a second wife even if his first wife dies. And many believe it is saying a divorced and remarried man is prohibited from ever serving as an elder. Now, the divorce issue is the one that most directly affects us today. But without going into all the issues and opinions related to divorce and remarriage, let me simply say the text doesn't specifically mention divorce here. And it could have. So we better not be too dogmatic about any particular view concerning divorce and the eldership. What we can note with confidence is that an elder is to be a one-woman man. For that's what the words translated husband of one wife actually mean. An elder must not be a womanizer. He must be faithful to his wife. 
It speaks of his commitment to marriage and to sexual purity. An elder must be above reproach when it comes to sexual behavior. Now, that's not to suggest that sexual sin disqualifies a man from ever serving as an elder. Sexual sins can be forgiven as can any other. But no man is qualified to serve as an elder if faithfulness to his wife and to sexual purity can be called into question. Next, Paul speaks of an elder being blameless in the area of fatherhood. He is to have children who believe, not accused of dissipation, prodigality, wastefulness, riotous living, or rebellion. Now, I don't believe this is saying an elder must have children any more than it was previously saying he must be married. Paul didn't say an elder must be the husband of a wife, but the husband of one wife. The emphasis was on one, on his faithfulness. If he is married, he must be faithful to his one and only wife. And if he has children, he must be blameless with regard to their belief and behavior. That brings us to another question. Can anyone really control the belief and behavior of someone else? I think we all realize the answer to that question is no. But as a father an elder must demonstrate the ability to control his children. In fact, Paul told Timothy an elder must manage his own household, keeping his children under control with all dignity. There does come a time, however, when children are no longer under a father's control when they leave home. So if adult children turn away from the Lord or become disobedient to the Lord, I don't believe this automatically disqualifies a man from serving as an elder. You know, God's original children, in fact, all of his children fell into sin. But God remained blameless as a father. The point here is that an elder must be above reproach when it comes to teaching and controlling his children. No one should be able to point a finger at him and say he did not meet his responsibilities as a father. For as Paul also told Timothy, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Family life is great training ground for eldership. And if possible, every church should have some blameless family men as elders. Again, that's not to suggest that if someone chooses not to marry or to have children, that he is disqualified from serving as an elder. If that were true, Paul would be unqualified, as would the Lord himself. But if a man is married 
And if a man has children, he must be blameless as a husband and father. But that's just one area. He must also be blameless as a steward. Verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Now, Paul uses the word overseer, episkopos here, a word that can also be translated bishop instead of elder. In fact, there are three words in Greek that are used interchangeably when speaking of elders. The word translated elder, the word translated overseer or bishop, and the word translated pastor or shepherd. Elder speaks of maturity. It actually means gray beard. Bishop or overseer speaks of position, and pastor or shepherd speaks of function. Paul uses the word for overseer. When he says an elder must be above reproach, blameless as God's steward, as someone put over a household. An elder is a steward of God who has been given the responsibility of overseeing a household, a church that belongs to God. And stewards must be blameless above reproach if they are to be put in charge of someone else's possessions. Obviously, a steward cannot be self-willed. His job requires him to look after the interests of someone else. He must do what the owner-master wants done. And he better not be quick-tempered. He must remain calm and make good decisions on behalf of the master. And no one is going to entrust their property to someone who is addicted to wine. The word actually means someone who is seen alongside of wine, who is identified with wine. I believe that means an elder, a steward of God, cannot be a drinker of alcoholic beverages. The priests of the Old Testament were not allowed to drink wine or strong drink when coming into the tent of meeting. And no one wants an elder making decisions under the influence of alcohol. An elder is to be filled with the spirit, not spirits. As are we all. For as Paul told us all in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. I see those in opposition. Obviously, I feel very strongly about this point. But moving on, a steward cannot be someone who is always looking for a fight, pugnacious, or who is out to make a fast buck. You don't want someone looking out for your interests who has a chip on his shoulder and won't listen to reason, 
nor will you entrust your possessions to someone who is known to steal and cheat, who is fond of sordid gain, who's going to try to line his own pockets. The Lord doesn't want such individuals as his stewards either. He wants blameless stewards. In fact, he wants men who are simply blameless persons. And Paul goes on to list some of the positive characteristics you will see in a man the Holy Spirit has equipped and chosen to serve as an overseer of God's church. Verse 8. But hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-control. An elder must be a lover of strangers, hospitable. He must take people in and reach out in the name of Christ. And a lover of good, someone who loves that which is right and good and is known for loving good rather than evil. He must also be a person who is sensible, who uses his head, who is just, fair-minded, and devout, which speaks of personal piety. In fact, these are basic character qualities this should be seen in all men of God, not just elders. Paul then notes that elders must be self-controlled. And again, this is a character trait that should be evident in every Christian's life because it's a fruit of the Spirit. Every mature Christian should be self-controlled. But it is essential that an elder be self-controlled. And to be self-controlled means to be enslaved to nothing. A man cannot be judged blameless if he is enslaved to anything other than Christ. This has obvious application to personal habits and addictions. Now, Paul said all things are lawful for us, but not all things are profitable and we must not be mastered by anything. And a man who is enslaved to something is not without handles. Elders must be blameless as persons, as should all who name the name of Christ. But there's one more area that is particularly essential for elders, and that is they must be blameless as teachers, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Teaching and overseeing the teaching that takes place in a church is the primary responsibility given to elders. That is how the flock of God is fed. And Paul told Timothy that an elder must be apt to teach, able to teach. Just being a good and righteous man is not enough. 
An elder must be able to teach. He must be gifted by the Spirit to teach. And he must obviously know and understand the Scriptures he's called upon to teach. Paul says he must be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. Now, I don't believe that means he must be a biblical scholar. But he must be well-versed in the Bible and able to carefully research it to discover what God has to say about matters that come before him. He must be doctrinally sound and able to defend his beliefs. And being without handles may very well indicate that he must not hold to unorthodox beliefs or controversial views that could label him as an extremist. In short, an elder is blameless as a teacher if he knows the Word of God intimately and one who is able to appropriately apply the Scriptures to decisions he's called upon to make. I think we can summarize all of this by simply saying elders must be men of faith and ability who have irreproachable character and unquestionable integrity. I thank God that we have such men as elders of Chatham Christian Church. And it should always be our prayer that more men rise up as men of God. Let's stand and sing.